0: Well, you're to be absolutely perfect, right? So that's uh, that's pretty easy. Go ahead and have fun with that. You doing a good job? No? Well, what a surprise. Let me learn you a little something, kiddos. Beloved children of mine, let me tell you all about how you can get up to that standard of perfection. Last time, last week, we were talking 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-10, through 10, and this concept of being perfect. The children of God are not able to sin. They are in God, and that means they are like God in that they cannot sin. If you do sin, you're not a child of God, and that's probably a problem if you want to be a child of God. And so how do we reconcile those two things? How do we get up to that point where We can be like God, where we can be perfect like Him. Well, ultimately, that's going to be accomplished in heaven, and yet, as we examined last week, that needs to be a part of our lives here on earth, an expectation that we're called to, to build up towards, and maybe, sure, maybe we don't get it right now, but we're constantly working and improving and trying for it. There's no excuse for us when we sin. That's evil, but there is mercy to help us through those trials, and as we, uh, as I forgot to point this out last week, but when you go back to First John chapter 2, I'm writing to these things to you so that you may not sin in verse 1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so the objective here is to get to the point where we do not sin. If we do, well, Jesus is merciful and he will help us through. But the objective is not, to just be content with never sinning, right? The objective is not to be set up at a point where you're good enough and that's it. The objective is to get to where you are faithful towards God, and that involves a lot of things, namely loving God And loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's where we go to in the end of chapter 3. Today we'll be looking at the rest of 1 John chapter 3. In verses 11 through 24, um, these sections just all chain together. And so I'm putting all of them together, going through at a bit of a faster rate to help hopefully get through all of this, but give you a, a glimpse of what he's doing. It starts to simplify a little bit, and some things start to clarify and just... Uh, settled down here at the end, and so we'll start in verse 11. We'll read through the rest of the chapter, and then as we go through, it's about every two verses John is making one point, and I'll just try to give them to you fairly quickly. It uh, shouldn't be too complicated, but then again, I am known to talk quite a lot sometimes. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because he keeps his commands and do what, because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit that he has given us. We get back to First John, um, not First not John, sorry. We get back to John's language as he kind of talks in circles on some of these subjects. I love the overall points. I'm kind of frustrated with the grammatical way he puts things together. But, you know, it works out because in about every two verses, you have one major point. And so, for example, let me shift the mic there a little bit. For example, you have in verses 11 and 12, John is picking up from what he left off with, which is, are you God's children or the devil's children? Are you uh, faithful or are you not? Are you evil or are you good? Are you loving or are you hating? And he says in verses 11 and 12, hey, we should love one another. Unlike Cain, the evil one who hated while he murdered, so Cain, Evil, hated, murder, that's all in one section. And then on the other side, you have Abel. Well, he's not even named here, but you have the opposites of all of those things. The opposite of evil is good. The opposite of hatred is love. The opposite of murder is not murder. (laughs) I, I don't have a good one for that one, right? It's life. So you have these three things that chain together, and what John is saying is this. Look, Cain is of the evil one. And the evil led him to hatred and sin. Actually, as well as the as well as that, another way to say that might be that Cain is full of hatred, and that leads him to evil. Evil leads to hatred, and hatred leads to evil. There's a cycle there that doesn't get better. Evil never leads to love, and love never ne- leads to evil. Okay, good never leads to hatred, and hatred never leads to good. Hatred and evil are paired together. uh, Good and love are paired together and those two are polar opposites So which cycle do you want to be on one of them reveals you to be God's child? One of them reveals you to be the devil's child and I'll let you guess which is which God is all about goodness and love the devil is all about hatred and evil. You didn't actually get to guess I didn't give you enough time for that. Hopefully it's obvious though that you shouldn't be the way that Cain was don't join in the cycle of hatred and evil. All you're going to get is a it's a self-perpetuating cycle, as the evil begets more hatred, and hatred begets more evil, and the mindset and the actions corrupt each other to the point where Cain now murders his brother because he is evil. On the other hand, we can join in the cycle that is love and goodness, showing love towards other people, which makes us be good to them, showing goodness towards other people, which you know, makes us love them. And that is a self-perpetuating cycle as well, but one headed upwards towards God. Which one do you want to aim for, God or the devil? And here I go, spending several minutes explaining what is a fairly obvious concept. Cain versus Abel. Evil versus righteousness. Uh, Hatred versus love. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be on the devil's side or on God's side? It's absolutely your choice. And your deeds and the way you interact with other people show if you are of God or the devil. Now, one of the things, one of the primary applications of this moving forward is found in verses 13 and 14 that, hey, the world, the natural world is, is well, it's towards the devil, Okay, it's not towards God. And the world is full of hatred, especially for God's people. The hatred perpetuates a cycle of evil. You, Christians, should not be the same way. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who doesn't love remains in death. That idea, those who don't love remain in the world, in the physical, in the devil's realm, and dying themselves. Hatred perpetuates evil, evil perpetuates hatred, and you righteous ones should not be the same way. In fact, you have passed from death to life because we love our brethren. You've exchanged that cycle. Any any Christian who's actually living it has exchanged the cycle of evil and hatred and gone to a cycle of goodness and love. Which one are you on? If you're on the cycle of evil and hatred, You're not living as a Christian, or you're just not a Christian at all. Maybe you claim it, maybe you don't. But if you're living an evil, hateful life, you are not one of God's children. Don't try to pretend that you are. You have some things to fix. You have some things to change, to switch cycles and join up with God's version of the cycle. That's up to you. Who are you, and where exactly are you heading? right now. Now, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer in verses 15 and 16, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Here we have in verses 15 and 16, this third set of two verses, we have John addressing Christians right here. He says, you know, the world is going to hate you, but it's okay. You've exchanged this cycle. You've changed out of the evil cycle. You've joined into the good cycle. And now as you're living as your gods and living in that cycle of goodness and love, working together, you won't get back on the evil cycle. You're not going to be a murderer. Murderers don't have eternal life. You're working in goodness and love. You are not going to go down that route. If you are God's, you will not get back on that evil cycle. You will not get back in the devil's territory. If you are God's, you're heading towards him. Jesus sacrificed his life for you. You now sacrifice your life for others. Jesus gave everything to show goodness to you. You give everything to show goodness to others. Jesus loved you. You love others. You are imitating him. And any child of God is called to that standard to live like Jesus lived to bless others like Jesus blessed them. And so, well, what does that look like? Okay, John, that's a great theory and all. I'm supposed to live like Jesus lived. What does that look like? Look at verses 17 and 18. Sacrificing yourself for your brother. It's particularly here sacrificing your stuff for your brother. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him. How does God's love reside in him? Other translations say something along the lines of, if anyone has the life of this world and withholds it from other people, um, because possessions and life are are the same word, and they're kind of translated based on context, which one you would imply um, as to which context. Now, back in chapter 2 and verse 16, We had this idea, this this maybe threefold sin in the world, everything in the world, talking about this cycle of evil and hatred again, look back at chapter 2, everything in the world, lust of the flesh, namely the lust of the eyes and the pride in of life is what old translations say. This translation I'm using, Christian Standard, says the pride in one's possessions. It's that same picture the pride in your stuff and everything that you have. If you have this and you are a child of God, you are not going to take pride in your stuff and keep it for yourself. You are going to be, well, not very proud of your stuff. And if someone needs something, guess what? You give to them. If anyone has this world's life, this world's possessions, this world's goods, and sees someone in need and withholds compassion from him, doesn't give him that stuff, how does God's love reside in him? People who follow that path, the lust of the flesh, namely, that is, I think, two different kinds, the lust of the eyes, the stuff you see and think about, and the pride of, the li- uh, the pride of life, the pride of the stuff you have. What you have and what you want, if you're following those, you're not following God. If you're following God, you're not following those. It's an either or situation. You get to pick. And so Jesus sacrificed himself for us. We sacrifice ourselves for others. Give up all of our stuff for our brother because as he says, we need to work for him. Let us love, not in word or speech. We should absolutely love and be loving in our words and our speech. But if that's the extent of it, that's not really love, is it? We need to love in action and in truth. Because, let's face it, action is greater than intention. A lot of times we have this statement, right? and I'm forgetting what the statement is. Uh, oh, it's the thought that counts. It is somebody's trying to do something nice to you, and they didn't actually succeed, but then they tell you, hey, I thought about doing something nice for you, and you're like, okay, great, uh, It's the thought that counts, but does it? I mean, in a sense, yes, but you actually didn't accomplish anything. And so, ultimately, not really. Ultimately, it doesn't do anything for anyone else to think about them and then not engage in actual activity. Action is greater than intention, but here's one of those self-perpetuating cycles again. Action is greater than intention, but intention is what precedes action. uh, Not Peter. Jesus is very clear about this in Matthew chapter 5, right? You've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, do not hate. Your intention is more important than your action. Here, John says your action is more important than intention. Which one is it? Well, it's both. Right, Actions that are done for other people are more important than the intentions behind them. If you're trying to do something good for somebody, it's more important that you do that good thing than that you think about the good thing and then tell them, oh, I thought about being nice to you. Well, why not just be nice to them? That's going to do so much more. At the same time, if you don't have that, in, if you don't have that intention, a good heart and a loving heart behind the action, then the action is ultimately rendered useless to you. That's the argument that Jesus makes in Matthew five. There's a balance there. Action feeds into intention, which feeds into action, and they all work together. John is talking about these cycles here, cycles self-perpetuating ones that feed into each other. Action is greater than intention. Intention precedes action. Get both of them and get on that cycle and work towards God in that way. And this, ultimately, this kind of work, intention to action, having the right heart, but also just doing the right things, that is what is going to give you some confidence in your salvation. Now, hopefully I stressed you out last week in verses 1 through 10. I hope that I did, because that's kind of the point of that section, I think, is to realize that you are not perfect. And that's really a problem, because God calls you to perfection all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament, all over the Bible. God calls us to perfection, to be something better than we were, and something that is completely holy. We don't achieve that, and that's not good, and that's something that we're always going to be working on for the rest of our lives. Even if we get to a point in which we are not currently going into sin, we still have to upkeep that for the rest of our lives, and that is by no means an easy task. It's only achievable through God, and so we have this question, right? God's children are not able to sin, but I feel very capable of sinning. Does that mean I'm not God's child? Does that mean I'm not, I can't have confidence? Does that mean I'm not saved? Uh, Am I always going to have this question? And there's this difficulty here, which I think is a legitimate difficulty. And what John says in verses 19 and 20 addresses that point. He talks about sacrificing. He talks about Jesus sacrificing for you. He talks about you sacrificing for Jesus. And now he says this in verses 19 and 20, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. Are you always confident in your salvation? No, you shouldn't be. If you're always confident, if, you're always, if, you're, if you always assume that you're right with God, you probably need to do some self-evaluation because the odds are that you're not always right with God. Are you always confident in salvation? No. And you shouldn't be but you also should be, right? Let me try to explain that a little bit better. Are you always confident? No. But can you always be confident? Yes. Are you always perfect? No. But can you always be confident that you have salvation in God? Yes, you can be. That's accomplished when we give our all. When you give, when you see your fellow believer in need, and you love your brother, and you sacrifice for him, when you act out the good intentions of your heart, when you give to others and sacrifice yourself for them like Jesus did for you, if that's what your life is made of, then you can have confidence that as you give your all, God is working with you. Oh, you may not be perfect. You may not be flawless and sinless. You should be, but you may not be. And even if that's the case, we can have confidence. If we are truly giving all of ourselves to God, again, a constant evaluation and never a static place, if we're always giving all of ourselves to God, then we can be confident. Our heart may condemn us. We may not feel like we're saved. And yet, if we know that we are sacrificing ourselves for the Lord, God knows. He reads our hearts. He is greater than our hearts. And even if our hearts tell us, I don't know, I don't feel perfect enough to be saved, well, guess what? You're not. But God sees the sacrifices that you make for him. And he has mercy towards those who are working. And he's willing to take people where they're at. We do not have to be perfect to earn a spot in heaven. We do have to be trying and God is merciful. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And this is why this is how we know that we belong to the truth and can reassure our hearts that we have sacrificed everything and continue to sacrifice for our brethren when they need it. Because Jesus sacrificed for us. Therefore, what do you do? Well, you do what's right. Verses 21 and 22, primarily, dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. In other words, if you do what's right, which is to love others and to act on it, then you can have confidence in that you are about to receive blessings from God as you obey. Obedience is going to help us be confident. We may not be able to be confident because when we look at our own lives, we know that we are not perfect, but we can have confidence that when we look at our own lives, if we are working for God, we know God takes that into account. And so the ultimate command Well, we're supposed to keep his commands, to do what's pleasing in his sight. And he quantifies that in verse 23 and 24. This is the command. Believe in Jesus and love one another. In other words, love God and love other people. That's the command of God. If we do this, then we are in God. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he, God, in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit that he has given us. If we do these things, if we love God and other people, if we do this and sacrifice accordingly, we know we're in God. If we're in God, that means we're his child. If we're his child, that means we have no sin. That means we have confidence to come before him. We have confidence And that leads us to go to God, which takes away our sin. Who who takes away our sin? Our confidence leads us to not sin, to go towards God fully and wholeheartedly. Our lack of sin leads us to go towards God, and God gives us our lack of sin. It's a self-perpetuating cycle again. If you give yourself to God wholly and completely, you can have confidence that you're in God wholly and completely. And having that confidence is what puts us on that level of perfection. It's when we fail to have that confidence of knowing that we're saved, of knowing that God's got us, of knowing that we can rely on him and avoid every trap of the devil. It's only when we forget those things that we fall into that sin that destroys us. Only when we quit the cycle do we end up failing the cycle. If instead we were to live our lives dedicated to God, we would have confidence. We wouldn't sin, and we would have confidence in that, that we are faithful to him. All of this is done through the spirit that he's given us. All of this is done by God's power, not our own, but all of this is reliant on us giving to him and sacrificing our lives so that we can grow and be more like him. That's really all the thoughts I have on the end of 1 John 3. It's a lot to take in. It's the counterbalance to last week. Hopefully that stressed you out and this comforts you, and hopefully you can meld those two ideas together. It's not a coincidence that they're next to each other in the text. It's not a coincidence that we talk about God's justice and then we talk about God's mercy right after. These two are counterbalances. Please don't go too hard on either end of the spectrum. Yes, we're called to perfection. We should be doing that. Yes, we're given mercy. We should be be living like it. But yes, we're called to be balanced and to be like God. Ultimately, the goal is to be perfect, and God will help us as we try and get there. Give yourself over. Help work towards Him. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get to experience some of that confidence along the way. Well, this was supposed to be a shorter episode, but... It wasn't. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you benefited. God bless, and I'll see you next time.